This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For a free trial plus $30 off when you sign up for an annual plan, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. I- I'm excited about this guest. So, Me too. Uh, I'm very happy. Let's just dive straight in. Let's just introduce the the excellent Mr. Dave Gorman. Hey, Dave. Hello, Matt. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Uh, Dave, we should we should explain. Um, is a crossword setter who used to do comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone um, for the last few months has had to be a who used to do comedy. That's yes. That's the modern world. It's it, you. I mean, you really have. You've been a favorite comic of mine for quite some time, but uh, you really you've dived headlong into the world of crossword setting, and now this is specifically cryptic crosswords, right? Which is a very unique beast in that world, isn't it? Uh, um, yes, it is. I mean, I, I I guess somebody somewhere is a regular crossword setter, but it feels to me like something that probably a computer program could do from start to finish. Ouch. Shots fired, Will Shorts, if you listen. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. well, well, the, well, the American-style crosswords are weird because they're sort of, they sort of sit halfway between British cryptic crosswords and quick crosswords. Yeah. In so that they're, sort of, they're semi-cryptic, but they are, they're not like cryptic in the way that the British ones are, which is sort of a full, almost a full riddle. Yeah, I, when the, I say a, 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 a regular crossword, I don't mean like an American-style crossword. I mean the one that my mum would do in the back of her newspaper, where the clue would be girl's name, five letters. And you can just go for a Rolodex of girls' names until you get the crossing letters, and then you could fill it in because it's Sarah, and you've got S, blank R, blank H. And I don't think right. a human being is required to either write the clue, girl's <laughs> name... <laughs> Or to come up with a grid that contains S blank R blank H. As, you know, I, I feel like it could be done, but I'm sure there are people who do That's it. probably true. And I guess I do, even among the ones that you would consider sub-cryptic. Um, I, I subscribe to the New York Times app, and it's the most satisfying ones are the ones that have some quirky theme to them, which I guess is cryptic adjacent. If it's only, even if it's only the long clues, the longer ones have something in common or have some similar wordplay that you realize later and helps complete it, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they are such different beasts in American and British crosswords. I, when I've been in the States, I've never got on with any newspaper crossword I found. It just doesn't feel right. And I just think it's one of those things you're, you're brought up in a culture and that's what works for you. Okay. And, and to let the Americans know what, there is sort of a structure to cryptic crosswords that's that's consistent, right? Oh, there's it's a very firm structure. Yeah. The way they basically work is that every single clue has two parts to it. And at least one of those two parts is the definition, is just a straight synonym for the answer. But it could be sort of a hidden one, a sort of slightly disguised synonym. And then the other part explains how to get to the word, either by being another synonym or by being something that explains how to make up the word, like an anagram or a compound of two different things or a combination of all sorts of various different options like that. Yeah, I think there's a thing, there's a, a lot of people over here don't know how cryptic crosswords work either because they don't have an <laughs> explainer with them in the newspaper. So unless you've been brought up in a way that teaches you from your environment, from your grandparents, from whoever, a lot of people look at it and think this is just gibberish and they never look at it again. 
but <laughs> it really looks like gibberish when you read it first. Yeah, although again, I think that's a bit of a myth because in popular mythology, the idea is crossword clues sound like the pigeon flew in on a fast-moving train. Is it scarlet? <laughs> Which is nonsense. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of that's grammatically a sentence, but it's not a sentence. And the reality is that uh, a crossword clue should be a perfectly formed natural sentence. You just have to work out where the definition is and where the wordplay is. Um, most of the ones I write are actually quite wordy as far as crossword clues go. I'm trying to think of a short one to illustrate it. Um, so I, I wrote a clue uh, which was uh, resists tattoo drill. Um, and that's only three words, but it's a perfect sentence. Resist, tattoo, drill means something. I'm trying to work out how many letters it is and in reverse passing it for myself. Resist, tattoo, drill. Resist. I think it's 11 letters, but I might be wrong. But it's um, oh. the, the answer is countersink, because counters means resists. Countersink. Ink is tattoo, and to countersink is to drill. So you've got a definition there, which is drill, and you've got some wordplay, which is counters, resists, tattoo, countersink. So and then you have to find a way to make things fit perpendicular to that the whole length of the word. Yeah, yeah. It can also be, I mean, it's just adding a degree of, I've spent, you know, half an hour try, trying to like, in an Excel spreadsheet, make just a part of a regular crossword. I can't even imagine adding the degree of difficulty of... Uh... <laughs> I think, yeah, that's um, crazy. yeah, well, anyway, it's, it's something I, I've been doing as a pastime since I was like 12, 13, 14. And through the many lockdowns we've had in the UK, so you can't, you know, I can't get in front of an audience. I can't do anything of my normal job. Um, so during these various lockdowns, I've, I've sort of somehow um, become a crossword setter for two different newspapers. That's amazing. Uh, which is um, fun, but uh, not as fun as getting in front of an audience. Yeah, there is. Uh, unless you're sort of cr constructing a crossword in real time while people laugh and applaud, it's not going to be. <laughs> no, the, the, the feedback loop from having the idea and getting a reaction <laughs> it is much longer. Although you've also you've written books, which is also a similar, very much delayed gratification. Um. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I kind of like um, mixing between between them. Um, I like the really short feedback loop of having an idea on the way to a show and doing it that night and finding out if it's funny or not. Uh, and I also like spending a few weeks holed up in my attic writing. Um, and if I, if I had to do only one, I think I'd go a bit stir crazy, which is where I am right now, because for over a year, I've only been <laughs> able to do one. Yeah, yeah. Well, well let's talk about both your other job and also we, we like to ask our guests before we get into stories what if anything is their background in science and i i know a fair amount of the answer to this one and it's because one of the first things i saw you do comedically was talking about that uh, yeah. and it's very similar to my background as well yeah i'm um i'm a university dropout and the degree that i was failing at uh was maths so um th that's that's as much as I connect to science. <laughs> um, I'm a failed math student. Which I was as well, but then I managed to blag my way back in after failing, which should not have happened. No, so I... what? How did, did you, you not do know that? that? No, I didn't I... know that. Uh, uh, what, Andy, particularly. Yeah, I failed my second year at university and managed to... I, I can't remember exactly which order of people I managed to talk to, but I sort of managed to basically convince them to give me a second go. 
And was it because of, of the distraction that comedy had become, or actually difficulty of courses, or I forget, maybe you didn't? No, tell me it was. The I mean, the, the, the reason was basically that I didn't do any work in the second year for all it's, for a combination of reasons. And it turns out you can't really do that with maths. Yeah, yeah. It turns out that um, you know, and it not not to disparage my uh, art student brethren, but you can to an extent bullshit your way through an arts degree. I mean, you can't fully, but you can at least sort of write an essay on something and vaguely bumble your way through it if you know some of the beats. But if you sit in a maths exam, as I did in the second year, and not even know what the question means... Yeah, I yeah. had that in quantum physics my second year also. That's, well, I, uh, it's sophomore it's, slump. Yeah. It's the same same story for me. I um, uh, I was a, a very gifted high school mathematician, and I right. was rapidly out of my depth in a degree. Um, I sort of didn't help myself, so um, I went to a well, in England we call like a bog standard comprehensive school. So the the state school system like you know a decent school but not a paid for education um and i got an offer to go to cambridge university which meant my parents were overjoyed this is one of our kids might go to cambridge this is amazing um but the offer because i was a very average student in their terms i had to ace every single exam and take some other exams that I wouldn't normally be taking and ace them as well. And I had to sort of demonstrate that I was absolutely A-grade material through and through. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. But what happened is other universities tried to then cherry-pick the people who failed to get into Oxford or Cambridge. So I'd had this offer from Cambridge, which was like five A's and a grade one at something I'd never heard of and the rest of it. Uh, and I had to kind of accept it because of family pressure. Right. Uh, and then Manchester University went, we'd quite like to get you if you don't make the grade, because you must be quite good if they've offered. Uh, so can you please just get one E? Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> which, which is quite ironic for Manchester at the time. And uh, I, <laughs> I thought this is brilliant. I don't brilliant. get it, but I'm assuming uh, it's a sports joke. No, it's a drugs joke. Manchester. Oh, oh. Manchester at that time was right in the middle of the sort of Happy Mondays and New Order. Oh, and- right, right. Yeah. So I uh, I accepted both those offers. I had my ridiculously impossible offer for Cambridge and my can't-fail-to-get-it-offer for Manchester. And as far as my teachers and my parents were concerned, I was trying to get into Cambridge. As far as I was concerned, <laughs> I might as well stop revising now. I know I'm going to Manchester. So I did. That's what I, you know, that was my route. And I turned up at Manchester already behind the pace because I hadn't really done any work at my A-levels and then fell away hugely. Um, And then at the end of my first year, I started doing stand-up and I I didn't go to another lecture. So all through my second, I literally didn't turn up for my second year and failed everything so dramatically. And I thought, brilliant, I'm free and it's kind of the reverse of your situation, Matt. I didn't have to try and persuade them to get me back. I had to persuade <laughs> them to let me go. Because I think the way it would work is is for every student they have on the course, they're getting some money from the government somehow or whatever. Uh, and so they were like, 
has your has your has your grand died? Has your girlfriend left you? Has your dog died? Just give us a reason to give you a compassionate relief. Come on, come back into the system. And I was going, no, I'd like to sign on, please. I'd like to get some benefits. Please tell them I'm off the course. And I had to sort of write letters and persuade them to kick me off, uh, much to my mum's <laughs> chagrin. Well, also. I- you you landed in Manchester at a really good time for comedy because that was the, the that group of people you came up with like Carolina Hearn and everyone. Yeah, it was, it was a ridiculous sort of... time. Yeah, we had um, we started doing a new material night, so I was very very new, and we had Steve Coogan and John Thompson and Carolina Hearn and Henry Normal who were all quite established and doing quite well for themselves, and a few other people. Uh, and I was like, oh, can I come on the new material night? And they went, no, you're not experienced enough. You're 19. You're a kid. You can't do this. Don't be ridiculous. And then three weeks later, when half of them weren't turning up with anything, they were like, all right, you can join the gang. So I was allowed in. <laughs> and we kind of had one of everything. We had like a comic poet. We had a double act. We had a musical act. We had a character act. We had an impressionist. There was sort of everyone was in their own little box so there was no rivalry everyone was helping each other everyone was trading information and details and contact details for gigs and shows and i was getting writing gigs for all of them when they were breaking through into tv and stuff as well because they were watching me do new material every week so that was kind of useful and it was just it was a fantastic training ground it was wonderful um that's amazing but then to sort of circle back the first I can't remember which order I saw you in because I saw, I saw your reasons to be cheerful show live. I think at a in a London preview, and right, then around okay. the same time I saw you on probably like the Par- the Paramount Comedy Network doing your old bit about perfect numbers. Yeah, which I wouldn't be able to do now because that involves a bit of uh, yeah deft it's, mathematical knowledge which someone I don't has put it have at my people have put it online so we can we can link to that but it was yeah it, i'd, I'd it kind of abandoned that but by the time you saw me live that was i'd abandoned doing regular stand-up and had become a guy who did these long narrative shows instead right um but yeah i did, this is, illustrates how um I think it says, some, says more about my family and my background, but it relates to what we were just talking about, I guess. At some point, I was doing an off-Broadway run of, uh, of a show, and I got interviewed by USA Today. And this journalist hung out with me for a few hours, and then she was like, I, I want to call one of your parents and get some background information. Stuff that no British paper would ever do. Like, the, the idea that anyone in America needs to know that I'm from a small town called Stafford and that my dad's <laughs> name is Derek, is, it just wouldn't occur to a British journalist that that was remotely relevant. But for some reason in America, this was deemed relevant. Uh, and so I, I gave her a phone number for my dad. And and then I met her again, like, three days later for a, a second interview. And this, I found absolutely amazing. So at this moment in time, I'd had my own TV show on the BBC. I was doing, like, national tours, and I was in the middle of an off-Broadway run. And when she said to my dad, what are you proudest of about him? He said he nearly got into Cambridge. <laughs> I hadn't even succeeded in doing. <laughs> it meant so much to my dad. I had no idea until then how, how devastated they must have been by my academic failure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that is remarkable. It's <laughs> pretty consistent you, with, yeah. Have you checked in recently to see now you've got quite a few more TV shows under your belt? Uh, sadly, he's no longer around to check in with. Oh, um, sorry. But oh. that's all right. Um, but uh, I think he, you know, he was at peace with what I did for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Cambridge adjacent, my Cambridge adjacent son. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was ridiculous. The 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 way that looms so large in British society is a thing. Well, well, while we're talking about models of mathematical ability and intelligence <laughs> levels, multiple people sent in this story. I'm, I'm gonna I'll put it in the uh, show notes as well. There, so Dave, you can see it popping up in the chat box. Yeah. But there's a there's a cuttlefish story that was sent in by. Amongst others, John Stoddart, Michael uh, Valbuena, and Robert Ghosh. I apologize if anyone else sent it in and I've missed you out. But cuttlefish have uh, a cephalopod has passed a cognitive test designed for human children. This is the, this is the marshmallow. <laughs> yeah, this is the marshmallow test. This science alert article uh, says the results appear to demonstrate there's more going on in their strange little brains than we know. So this is so, the thing where a marshmallow test, if I'm right, that's where you basically say, here is a, a lovely sweet, and if you don't eat it, I'll come back in 10 minutes and you can have two. That is and exactly it. At a very young age, a child is unable to do that. It's not the one where you play some EDM music and ask them if it's Skrillex or Mouse <laughs> or Marshmallow. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but Cuttlefish have also aced that, so they're really doing well. Damn. Um, wow. But this... Yeah, so it's it's exactly that. It's 15... You sort of put the, the marshmallow in the room with a kid for 15 minutes and tell them if they can hold off eating it, they will get two marshmallows, uh, which is originally used to dis- study how human cognition develops, uh, specifically at what age is a human smart enough to delay gratification if it means a better later outcome. And it's so simple it can be adjusted for animals. Obviously, you you, you can't tell them they'll get a better reward, but you can train them to understand that better food is coming if they don't eat the food in front of them right away. Uh, So apparently some primates can delay gratification along with dogs, albeit inconsistently, and corvids too have passed the marshmallow test. (laughs) That's corvids being crows. Yeah. Uh, crows Crows are apparently ridiculously intelligent and wily. They, they look Uh, it to me. I'd say that's, that seems to be true from the outside. They do, but apparently, I think I believe they are more intelligent than owls, for example, which are the archetypal smart at- yeah, smart okay. bird. Yeah, that's why they call them the octopus of the sky. I believe, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, last well, year, of... sorry, they, they, well, they lost out on the um, collective noun, didn't they? It's a murder of crows and a parliament of owls. Oh, that's right. Wow. Although, so... you know, arguably, you have to be smarter to get away with being a murderer than a politician. <laughs> that is true. Yes. <laughs> So last, last year, these cuttlefish passed a version of the test. Scientists show that common cuttlefish, that's uh, sepia officinalis, no sepia is their uh, genus. Yeah. Huh. They can refrain from eating a meal of crab meat in the morning once they have learned that dinner will be something they like much better, shrimp. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning two things now. I'm yeah. learning that shrimp <laughs> is preferred by uh, cuttlefish to crab meat. Unsophisticated tastes, yeah. But also yeah. the idea that that's consistent across a whole species, because there's there's nothing, there's no food. Except all, all humans prefer. That. <laughs> yes. So I, I don't think you've done enough tests on cuttlefish to know they all prefer shrimp to crab meat or whatever. 
Yeah, you we could have... just you could maybe just get a cuttlefish that is crab averse. Yeah. Incidentally, yeah. So as a, a side note on um, owls being famously intelligent, and I I know this because I was recently looking at cluing in a crossword the word owlish. Um, so I went to the dictionary to see what the definition of owlish was. And it has six definitions, and they are as follows. Number one, like an owl. Number right. two, solemn, especially if also bespectacled. <laughs> Three, wise. Four, blinking. Five, five, stupid. And six, dull-looking. So owlish means both wise and also stupid. I mean, that's a very useful and therefore useless word. Right, right. <laughs> it's sort of like the word Smurf in the show Smurfs. It's just whatever <laughs> yeah, you yeah, want yeah. it to be. Utterly ridiculous. I'm try- anyway. I'm trying to think if there are... I, I know there are other words that, because of ways they've evolved, are, can be their own antonym. Uh, yeah, f- uh, flammable or inflammable. Um, temper can mean um, sort of... Uh, basically, it's opposite at the same time, can't it? Temper can mean um, like a fit of rage or also being calm. Oh, yes. yeah. Contra- contronyms, these are called. Let's see. Yeah. Oversight? Yeah. Is one, I guess. Wait, how is that the opposite, though? Oversight. Oh, you, you missed it, and also you looked for. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sanction. That's oh, a good yeah. One. Sanction's yeah, yeah. a great one because, yeah, you, you, can, you can sanction someone, but can mean you oh i'll allow allow or or ban yeah yeah yeah. temper can mean composure self-control or uncontrolled anger right so it's self-control and uncontrolled anger right (laughs) Right. there's there's loads of good ones uh to uh, cleave can separate something or to adhere yeah i forgot cleave means adhere sometimes yeah yeah. that's actually very hard this is very handy for crossword cluing i suppose so yeah or confusing, or, or too confusing. Possibly too oh, confusing. Go- there's I might really now simple... try and do a, a grid full of contronyms. <laughs> go, even. <laughs> go can yeah. mean to, to, to proceed, obviously, but it can also mean to, like, the bridge has gone. Yes. Yeah. Failed. Go. Uh, oh, huh. I think that's more of a British use of it. I, I'm not sure Americans would say. So go meaning Fail. Yeah, as, as in it's like fruit, the fruit has gone or the bridge has gone. Hmm. I'm trying to picture whether that would be a thing you'd say in America. It might not Or be. the car engine's gone. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. I've, I've taken us away yeah. from <laughs> cephalopods. No, I, I, yeah, this is definitely off topic, but I do, I'm very interested at rock. Uh, rock can be solid or it can also mean shaking, wobbling. Yeah, yeah. Or rocky. Yeah. Could be like a rock or like, like a rocking rock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I forgot. We got this onto this via Corvids, right? Is that how we got? Uh, it was from Owl. So it, <laughs> it was, was from Owl. Right. Corvids to Owls. Right. Yeah. So uh, you want to get back to... Yes, we should. I'll, I'll put, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to these 75 contronyms and you, you can enjoy You found 75. Them. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I, well, someone else found 75. Yes. I found one page that contains right, all right, 75. Right. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so so there's the crab and the shrimp. 
This team of researchers led by behavioural ecologist Alexandra Schnell at your near alma mater, the University of Cambridge, pointed out in a new paper that it's <laughs> it's difficult to determine whether this change in foraging behaviour in response to prey availability was also being governed by an ability to exert self-control. So they designed this other test for six common cuttlefish. They were placed in a special tank with two enclosed chambers that had transparent doors so the animal could see inside. In the chambers were snacks, a less preferred piece of raw king prawn in one, and a much more enticing live grass shrimp in the other. Mm. Okay, so now it's the same the same species of food, but living or dead. Right. Uh, the doors, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily know for sure that, which one's preferred, but the doors had symbols on them that the cuttlefish had been trained to recognize. This is an incredibly complicated <laughs> experiment. Yeah. A circle means the door would open straight away. A triangle means it would open after a time interval between a hundred between ten and one hundred and thirty seconds, and a square, which is only used in the control condition, means that the door will stay closed indefinitely. Okay. So, in the test condition, a prawn was placed behind the open door, while the live shrimp was only accessible after a delay. If the cuttlefish went for the prawn, the shrimp was immediately removed. Meanwhile, in the control group, the shrimp remained inaccessible behind the square symbol door that wouldn't open. The researchers, <laughs> found, yeah, the researchers found that all of the cuttlefish in the test condition decided to wait for their preferred food, the live shrimp, but didn't bother to do so in the control group where they, knew, where they couldn't access it, whereas behind the squares, so they knew that door would never open. So cuttlefish in the present study were able... Okay, so, so you've got these, these two different tanks, one, with, one that's the test group one that's the control group but in the test group there's the live shrimp behind the triangle door which they know will open but not immediately yeah and in the control group it's behind the square door which they know will never open so the the square group go for the less preferred food but the triangle group will wait they'll wait mm. for the triangle door to open and so, the, am I right? There's a crab at the door that who, they can ask him three questions and he cannot tell exactly. them why. <laughs> Is that if right? If I asked the triangle what the square will be. <laughs> I, all I know is that my five-year-old son failed the marshmallow test yesterday. Oh. <laughs> so I now, tomorrow, will tell him he's stupider <laughs> than a cuttlefish. But, but you should also follow it up by saying, but cuttlefish are surprisingly intelligent amongst animals. So yeah, yeah. Amongst sea creatures. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have even thought of this as related to intellect. I would have thought this is like a, just a different, that restraint is different from intellect. You know, that the ability with, to uh, delay gratification is like on a different spectrum from intelligence. But I guess not. Well, well there, was, there was the story, um, the thing that I remember reading a while ago was with it's with kids a bit older than your son but the the exper- the data pr- you supposedly showed that the kids who are able to pass the marshmallow test and delay gratification did better later in life is was what was supposedly the experimental data like the the kids that could hold off were more successful later but then i remember i think we did this on the show there was a, another story later that essentially said yes but it's not causation they're both caused by the tertiary factor who has rich parents and (laughs) therefore doesn't have to worry about food 
or, or right. even like comfortable parents. Oh, I thought you were going to say just parents who spent more time teaching them the delayed oh, gratification. Well, possibly that as well. But basically, the kids who grew up in households where with food scarcity, and therefore knew that they knew both from experience and from their parents' behavior that you don't wait to eat food expecting something better to come along. Yeah, yeah. We're also the same kids that unsurprisingly weren't as successful later in life because they didn't have the financial head start. But how could anybody do that study without controlling for economic background? That seems like the first thing you'd control for if you're trying to look at how people... I don't know. Fair by standard let, measures of, of life success. Let me. I'm. I'm going to look this up while we're discussing other things. But I feel. I feel the need now to defend my son. Um, <laughs> told you that he failed the marshmallow test. Also to defend myself in case anyone's at home thinking you did the marshmallow test on your son. <laughs> I wasn't doing a test. One. So we, we're in this lockdown at the moment, and we're you know we we are. What's this to, now? We're in a lockdown because of COVID, so we okay. are basically, you know, he's not in school at the moment, he's being homeschooled, it's all sort of, we're quite restricted, and, and we have very few options on sort of going out anywhere, but one thing we can do, we live uh, near the seaside, um, and so occasionally we'll go he on his scooter and we'll walk down, it's about a mile to the to the seafront and we can walk down there and have a little sandwich by the beach and then scoot back up and it's pretty good exercise for a five-year-old and because it's a seaside resort there are lots of places selling ice cream even in this very unseasonal time of the year and and so he often will sort of beg you to give him an ice cream when he's at the seaside Uh, and the day before We'd had um, a dinner at home and as pudding out of the freezer, we had got these little, from a supermarket, little sort of, uh, I don't know, do you have a magnum in America? A kind of a, a posh chalk ice. Uh, so a wooden stick with ice cream and a chocolate coating on it. But a very little one. And I'd had one for, for my pudding after dinner the night before and he'd asked for one and his mother had said, no, you can't have one because you had an ice cream at the beach earlier and that's too much sugar. So he had that equation in his head. And then as I took him the next day on this journey to the beach, he started saying, oh, can I have an ice cream? And I said, well, you can have an ice cream if you want, but you know that means you won't be able to have one later on. And he went, okay, okay, I won't have one. I'll have one later on. And secretly, I was thinking, this is brilliant because the ones in our freezer are tiny and the ones at the beach are much (laughs) bigger and it would be much healthier for him to just have one little tiny one from the freezer later than for me to buy one at the beach. So it wasn't even a fair marshmallow test because he was being offered much more in the short term than -hmm. he would have had in the long term in reality. But he took the choice that he wasn't going to do it and then the minute we got within 100 yards of the beach, I went, I've changed my mind. I want an ice cream. So he was actually making the wise choice because I don't know if he'd calculated that one was much bigger than the other. But it essentially came down to his lack of restraint. He knew it was near. He, he needed it. You also didn't control for the psychological effect of the goal gradient, which is the same reason that people speed up in the last five miles of a long road trip. Like It's yeah. just like that's that's an inherent thing. So, yeah, once he got close to it, it's like, I, uh, I, can't, I can't stop now. Yeah, and it's, all, it's also hard to account for, you know, it's an ice cream coming from, a, like, a, a man in a booth is much more exciting than just your parents pulling it out of a freezer. Yeah. There's a whole procedure. There's a whole process involved. It comes out of 
you, he gets to, I'd imagine he gets to see it come out of the machine as well, which was a magic trick when I was a kid. Yeah, it's not the Mr. Whippy ones. It's a kind of scoop. Um, oh, okay. But he had also discovered from his previous two trips to the seafront, where he'd been with uh, his mum, that when they asked for one scoop, the guy was giving him two. And we discovered when it was he was with me, um, he got one scoop, which I now know means the man was flirting with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's the start of so many long-lasting relationships, is, is double scooping a kid. Yeah. <laughs> he, he knows what's up. Yeah, Ice cream yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting um, two scoops to the lactose intolerant lady. <laughs> So, so the other part of this cuttlefish experiment apparently was to test how good the six, the six cuttlefish were at learning. They were shown two different visual cues, a grey square and a white one. When they approached one, the other would be removed from the tank. If they made the correct choice, they would be rewarded with a snack. Once they had learned to associate a square with a reward, the researchers switched the cues so that the other square now became the reward cue. Interestingly, the cuttlefish that learned to adapt to this change the quickest were also the cuttlefish that were able to wait the longest or wait longer for the shrimp award. Mm. Okay. So it does seem that cuttlefish can exert self-control, right? But what's not, not clear is why. In species such as parrots, primates, and corvids, delayed gratification has been linked to factors such as tool use because it requires planning ahead, food catching, and social competence because pro-social behavior such as making sure everyone has food benefits social species. But cuttlefish, as far as we know, don't use tools or cash food, nor are they especially social. The researchers say this ability to delay gratification might instead have something to do with the way they forage for their food. They spend most of their time camouflaging, sitting and waiting, punctuated by brief periods of foraging, says Schnell. They break camouflage when they forage, so they're exposed to every predator in the ocean that wants to eat them. We speculate that delayed gratification may have evolved as a byproduct of this, so that the cuttlefish can optimize foraging by waiting to choose better quality food. Man, Matt, those cuttlefish, they, they sure seem to, to be on top of their... They, they have a lot of self-restraint. They have a lot of control, if you will. They, they seem pretty smart as well. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm a bit worried about being outsmarted by cuttlefish. If, uh, if, if only there was some way. If, if only there was some way where we could improve ourselves substantially above the level of a cuttlefish via some kind of... I don't know, a lecture series that's part of an unlimited library of lectures taught by top experts in their field. Wait, are you talking about the Great Courses Plus? Have you heard of it? I have. <laughs> I, I, we, we, I've actually been uh, availing myself of their lectures for nigh on, I don't know, has it been like three years? I don't know. I, uh, it's, it's been a while. We've been chugging through their lectures and we're currently right in the middle of outsmart yourself brain-based strategies to a better you the perfect course to really stick it to those cephalopods i know right you can pass the mushroom the, the mushroom oh, the marshmallow test after, probably could te- you could probably pass the mushroom test if that I exists could think, they could pass almost any food-based test yeah. but you could pass so much more thanks to this course taught by a renowned neuroscientist it's uh, it's got so many useful things for daily life, especially for those of us who are at home more than we used to be, which is everybody. Like Things like uh, simply cleaning your kitchen can reduce excessive snacking. Um, lots of things that, that you try to be sort of 
common sense, but we don't let them be common sense. Like the fact that monotasking is better for mental performance than multitasking. Like we should put this multitasking uh, thing to bed once and for all. Yep. Um, I, I'm hoping, Andy, that you've got through the uh, lecture three, train yourself like a dog, because I remember... <laughs> I remember when we were recording in person or those times that you kept chewing through cables and... Uh, <laughs> they look so tasty. They do look tasty, but you've got to learn it's not spaghetti. Right. Not yeah. everything that shape is spaghetti. <laughs> Just because something is a spaghetti morph does not make it spaghetti. <laughs> exactly. But the lecturer for this course is uh, Dr. Peter Vishton, who is at William & Mary and previously at Cornell. Woo! And previously at Northwestern as well. All right. <laughs> no, but this is true of all the lecturers in the Great Courses Plus. They all have incredible pedigrees, and they are chosen for their knowledge as well as for their lecturing abilities, which are and, outstanding. And as I'm sure you're aware, if you've been following the show and following their sponsorship with us, uh, you can jump between platforms as well. It is platform agnostic. You can switch from listening to it as a podcast in your car to watching it on your computer or your smart TV or your phone via the phone app. Uh, and you have unlimited access via our offer for unlimited access for a free trial plus also new offer they are giving our listeners $30 off if they then after the free trial go for an annual subscription yeah so that makes it just $10 a month with that discount which is you know half what you'll pay for a lot of streaming services that probably don't add to your life and help you develop strategies to better yourself the way that the great courses plus does so you know think about where you're spending your money and this could be a really positive yeah. thing in your life and but think, first think of about all, that ten dollars a month that you're already spending on new microphone cables <laughs> yeah there is that because someone you... just won't learn <laughs> but yeah if you just want to just dip your toe in you can always do that for free thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably for that free trial no risk and i think we both think that you will like what you find and want to sign up for more but um so yeah check basically it out. any subject you want to learn almost any subject they've got it so that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. I thought the natural predator for the cuttlefish was the parrot. <laughs> it, it feels it. I mean, that's, that's the only thing I've ever seen eating a cuttlefish was a parrot. <laughs> there, there does generally have to be a pet shop involved. In, in yeah, 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 yeah. Is it really used as feed? I don't know what cuttlefish are known for. Um, I think that's the, that seems to me to be the cuttlefish... Uh, role in life is to be, um, <laughs> it's, it's pet food for a parrot. Ah. Parrot f parrots will eat just about anything, though, as well. Is that right? I, I know this having lived with someone who had a pet parrot, and that was a dick, by the way. I still <laughs> we we had we had a whole thing like we didn't get on, we didn't like each other. It was mutual. He uh, she started it, but um, it's uh but yeah, this parrot would eat just. I think they're pretty much omnivorous right you know if you if you and this parrot have bad blood and it if it's because the parrot was saying mean things to you you know that means <laughs> that it was your flatmate that was saying mean things and the parrot was copying it you do know it wasn't aimed at you don't you uh, i don't know it was it was the it was the way she said it it's <laughs> <laughs> not the words yeah. it's, it's the intonation <laughs> even, even when she was saying nice things you knew she didn't mean it yeah. Nothing worse than a sarcastic parrot. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they, they are smart animals, and she, she remembers me. Like When I go back now, or I haven't been, obviously in a year, but when I had gone back in the past, uh, there's definitely, like, she, she knows me. She remembers. 
Okay. And there's still definite animosity there. Hmm. This is a friend of the show, Emery's, right? This, yes, this, this is year. Emery Emery uh, and his parrot, Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> I, sh- I should point out in his fairness, uh, in fairness to him, that he inherited the bird with that name already. Ah, uh, okay. From, I, I think, from other friend of the show, Jake Johansson. Okay. What? Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was... I think it was Jake's bird, if I remember rightly. It was it was some other comic's bird, and I think his wife was allergic or something like that, or just didn't get on. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that that bird now that came to live with Emery about I say a good ten years ago now. I have a friend. I have a friend called Carla, um, and her mum has a dog that she's called Carla. And and I think it, her mum's defence is, but I've spelt it differently. So <laughs> one of them is with a K, and one of them is with, is with a C. But I find I can't get past the idea that it, there is an adult woman in the world who has named her dog the same name as her daughter. <laughs> I find that very peculiar. And if she's talking to her daughter and the dog's responding, does she have to say, "Hey, Carla"? No, no, Carla, the dog. It's yeah. Carla with a C. Yeah. <laughs> So peculiar. Um, that is very funny. Yeah. I did also, this, this um, goes back many years, and I can't remember the guy's name. He was the boyfriend of a friend of mine, and I haven't seen him for 20 years. But he had a big gap between him and his older brother. Uh, and he discovered only when he was at school that he and his older brother had the same first name. So, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's so peculiar. So he's, his, what's happened is his parents have had a, a, a child and they've gone, what's a good name for a boy? I know. Let's call him Stephen. I like Stephen. So they've named their first child Stephen. And then when he's been alive for six months or so, he sort of ended up being called by his middle name. So his, his given name on his birth certificate is like Stephen Patrick Smith or whatever. Uh, and when he's like six months old, they go, he's more of a Patrick, isn't he, really? He's more of a Patrick. <laughs> Come here, Pat. Come here, Pat. And they've just started calling him Patrick. Then eight years later, they've had a second child. And they've forgotten that their first child is actually called Stephen. <laughs> and they've gone, what's a good name for a boy? <laughs> And I love the idea that two people, when faced with the challenge of what's a good name for a boy, will have the same answer eight years later and put it into <laughs> Just, practice. Hey, a and winning was, name's a winning name. Yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of, uh, again, I don't know if this happens uh, worldwide, but there's definitely sort of, I remember it happening very, like me, once a year, maybe twice a year during my childhood at school where they do the register and all of a sudden, there's one day where they do all of your names, your first name, your middle names, and they go through this weird formality. I don't know what it's for, but there's a, a... I can remember three or four of my classmates from when I was 10, their full names, because of this weird ritual that used to happen. And it was when that was happening one year that the boys discovered that they were both called Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. But also, what's weird is... It doesn't happen that often, but numerous times in my life, I've had to write my full name on a legal form of some sort. Yeah, but I guess this is a child who's being called Patrick 
by his parents, by his family, by his teachers, and yep. once a year gets this odd reminder that he's actually called Stephen. And goes, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. And it just sort of just doesn't feature very, doesn't loom large in his life most of the time. So it's not because every uh, British child has, a la the prince's, like seven actual names that they don't go by. Uh, no. Did we figure out that last week? Like Prince Harry's full name is just like Harry, Charles, Xavier, William, Robert, John, uh, Jonathan. Or something. Oh, it's, yeah. They've all got six... ridiculous numbers. Of yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is. Um... They also have to be named after multiple um, ancestors. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a weird. They are in a particular situation where they have to honour family traditions in some weird way. It's a fate that I that nearly fell to me. Um, I only have I have one middle name and I only have one because I'm a twin. So my brothers, I've got two older brothers as well, and they are Jonathan Michael Charles Gorman and Richard Jeremy Charles Gorman, and they th- that makes them sound like minor members of the royal family <laughs> and it's it's only because i'm a twin and my parents went i'm not filling in all that for two lots of forms that i i got james as my middle name and that's it but if, <laughs> if i'd been by myself i would have been david james charles because my parents were trying to instill some uh, fake faux aristocratic sense of <laughs> there's no family history with charles they just gave it to their first two sons to try and sound posh this is very much in tandem with the man whose whose greatest dis- pride was in me nearly getting to Cambridge, isn't it? <laughs> I can see a connection. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of there. <laughs> my my mum seems. I remember her telling me she went to school with someone whose family name was was uh, Norman, and his dad married a Norma so she was Norma Norman <laughs> and then they called their son Norman <laughs> wow um, so yeah Norma Norman and Norman Norman in the same family yeah though famously um, there were two Manchester United footballers Phil Neville and Gary Neville and their dad was Neville Neville that's right yeah which takes some doing, doesn't it? There's a, you know, that's that's it's a very not, it doesn't happen by accident. No, that's a well, very also, deliberate decision by someone. You also don't think both Norman and Neville. Apologies to any Nevilles or Normans who might be listening to the show, but that it's not such a good name. That you think. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I I know it's already our surname, but I just have to call my kid this. Yeah, yeah. So good they named it twice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I've, there's a couple of nice little stories floating around. Given that we mentioned drugs earlier, I, this story is a new scientist, which might be one of the last times we do a story from a new scientist. A, uh, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. yeah, one of our one of our listeners tweeted at us. To, Anthony Siva tweeted at us to point out that the Daily Mail has just bought New Scientist, <laughs> which it seems like a an odd marriage at best. Yeah. Right. I don't know whether New Scientist is going to suddenly start publishing a lot more articles about things that cause or cure cancer. Uh, generally foodstuffs and generally contradictory <laughs> within a, about a week Choc- of each other. Yeah, Chocolate, yeah. coffee, wine, what else? Yeah. yeah. Strawberries, they've all been the cure sure. and the cause. Yep. 
Yeah. yeah, everything. There was, I think it's gone now, but there was for a while someone was maintaining a website that listed everything that the Daily Mail was claiming either caused or cured cancer. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Just chart where it is in the positive or negative by date. Yeah. Uh, but, but this is a story about microdosing psychedelic drugs, which may be just down to the placebo effect. This is okay. What? This is not something I have tried, but I know I, I know we have a few friends who swear by microdosing. This is the act of taking, rather than taking a large enough dose to properly trip on something like LSD or mushrooms, you take a fraction of an LSD tab every day or most days, and it supposedly doesn't get you high, but it does make you more creative, sharper, and might improve your mental health. It's taking like 10 to 20% of a normal dose a few times a week. And some trials, according to this New Scientist article, suggest that larger doses of psychedelics can help relieve anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions. We've talked about this on the show before. But microdoses have been tested only in small placebo-controlled trials with mixed results. The placebo effect, is, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, is when people gain physical or mental benefits from medical treatments due to the power of expectation. And because it's so hard to get permission for research when people are given illegal drugs, Balas Sigetsi, uh, Sigeti at the Imperial College in London and his colleagues came up with an unusual trail design. They used internet forums to contact people who were already frequently microdosing at home <laughs> using LSD or the magic mushroom compound psilocybin or similar drugs usually bought online. The researchers didn't analyze the difference in effects based on the drugs participants were using. They were sent empty medical capsules in the post that they could open to insert a small piece of drug impregnated paper. When reclosed, the loaded pills looked the same as empty ones. The 191 volunteers put the drug into some of their capsules, then put them into batches in envelopes printed with QR codes and shuffled the envelopes so they no longer knew which contained which, contained which the drugs. So they're basically blinding they know, their own experiments. Right, yeah. Yeah. One third of the participants took only the drug microdoses for four weeks. One third got placebo capsules and another third got 50-50. The volunteers shouldn't have been able to tell them from the envelopes what they were taking, but the researchers could find out by analyzing the QR codes at the end of the trial. Oh, cool. The, the volunteers also took objective online tests to measure mental acuity and answer subjective questionnaires about their mood and experiences, as well as recording their guesses as to whether they had taken the drug or the placebo. All three groups experienced similar improvements in their long-term psychological and cognitive outcomes over the four weeks. People who took the real drugs showed quote, incredibly small benefits in their survey answers about mood and creativity in tests done a few hours after dosing, said Sigetsi, but only on the subjective tests. There was no benefit seen on the objective tests. In, in addition, mm. these effects were most pronounced in people who were good at guessing if they had the real drug, probably due to a mild noticeable effect, suggesting that even those small benefits could have been due to the placebo response. But, Wait, if you know that they're saying if you are aware you got a little bit high, you are then going to have more of the placebo effect? Are you going to think it did yes. something good? Yeah, because if you... But what if it actually did? I mean, that doesn't yeah. preclude... It doesn't mean it couldn't have done that. It just means no, that, you're aware you're tripping a little bit. No, because they're, they're comparing... In that, in that case, they're comparing the people who got the real drug but weren't aware of it or didn't correctly guess that they'd had oh, it okay, okay, versus okay. the people who got the real drug and okay, yeah, had okay. correctly guessed. Um, hmm. So, uh, but the trial may not be the final word on microdosing, it says, because partly 
because the volunteers were not supervised by clinicians. Uh, Bernard Hommel at Leiden University in the Netherlands said the trial may have also found more of an effect if the researchers had measured people's creativity using objective tests rather than simply asking if they felt creative. Everyone says that about microdosing, says Hommel, and that's what we as scientists want to know. I didn't know that there were like a pretty defined tests that can say this person is more creative than or this answer is more creative than this one. Yeah, I don't like know. It's a hard test to. Uh, I'm I'm just really impressed with the commitment to science of those 191 people who've yeah, basically right. responded to an online request from a stranger and gone, yeah, okay, you you send some stuff over and I'll make sure that some of my drugs aren't real. Well, I mean, these are people who are already microdosing, so you know they're not. If they are keeping it at the doses that we're talking about, they're not trying to trip balls. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's like, yeah. I guess if they're already trying to do self-help through this, it makes sense they would also want to I, I kind of – it, it doesn't surprise me that much just because I'm, I'm thinking about the the types of people who tend to microdose. It's gravi- There's like a lot of um, a lot of Silicon Valley type people. Right, right. A lot of um, uh, sort of like hacker culture. There's people who sort of have a natural willingness to tinker and experiment and a certain level of curiosity. You're wannabe Tim Ferriss's, right. those types. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd ever really heard of microdosing before this conversation. So Really? Yeah, not really. I, mean, I, I know the word. I, I've heard the word before, but I've never investigated it, known what it is, talked to anyone about it. I don't – it's, you know – I can work it out. It's got a lot of context with it, but um, yeah, yeah. But I know it's people alien have, to have, me. I know people have tried it for for depression. Oh, I have one friend who tried it for a while. It was like this is doing nothing. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, I just feel a little bit high. I'm like, okay, that's maybe what the study is saying, also. But I think it could also depend on. Like, obviously, it'd be better if this could be studied in a regular way. And it is silly that we can't allow people to do real science with. These drugs that are probably way safer than a lot of things that we <laughs> prescribe people on a regular basis, but you know it could it could come down to like how how micro the microdose was, and I'm sure some people's metabolism is such that the same dose, the same microdose doesn't even get above whatever line you have to get above to have some psychological effect at all. You know? Yeah. Um, I've just found, by the way, I found a a page that lists six different objective creativity tests. Oh. Although this is from the website creativecorporateculture.com. So take that with <laughs> a hefty grain of salt. But it does, so there's Guilford's test of divergent thinking. Uh, there's the remote, the remote associates test. And that one is um, rather than finding the one right answer to the, uh, uh, oh, this this is about finding the run right answer to the problem. It gives the respondents three words which are connected in one way or the other, uh, which are in one way or another related. The respondents to ask is to find out what connects them together, uh, and it gives an example which I suspect you will get fairly quickly is uh, what links elephant, lapse, and vivid memory. That's yeah. what I presume. It says answer at the end of the article, but I'm gonna guess that that is correct. So that's sort of, the, I guess, the only connect test. Then the right. the Torrance test of creative thinking, uh, artistic assessment tests, self-assessment tests, which is what I think they were doing. And then there is a Kellogg Northwestern University, how creative are you test. 
which has a link. So maybe we'll do that later and see whether we're creative or not. Mm-hmm. I suspect I'm. I hope I'm creative. <laughs> I hope I am, but I also look at things like the torrents test of print these figures out and see what you can turn them into, and I just can't be bothered. <laughs> just doesn't. I just hate that sort of because it, it feels like a sort of corporate job interview. Yeah, yeah, um, it does. Yeah, I don't. Those, those sort of questions that. That, that are just designed to watch you think rather than actually get the correct answer. Like the yeah. sort of how many people are playing tennis right now in the world. Yeah, yeah. I like When I was a, a kid, I used to do youth theatre and things, and one of the the warm-up exercises before you did a, a drama workshop thing would be a kind of pretend you're an animal. And while everyone else was running around being chimpanzee, I used to lie on my back and, and, and if the teacher said hey, what are you i said i'm a sloth <laughs> and i i just thought i'm not doing this i'm ready I'll, I'll when this actually starts i'll do the thing we're actually here to do but i feel this is belittling and silly and doing nothing to warm me up if all these other people <laughs> need to pretend they're a cat <laughs> so they can then rehearse the play we're here to rehearse then fine but i'm not doing it and that's what this stuff reminds me of it's stuff like, just get on with the actual job I just, I just put, I just, this brings to mind a sketch from 32 years ago from the Tracy Ullman show, uh, the same year it launched the Simpsons as a, uh, segment within it. Um, that is one of these job interviews where you have a table with an assortment of random objects and you're supposed to do something creative with them. And I won't spoil the ending, but it's the, the commitment. To, it's, it's a great sketch. Uh, the Oof. link is there. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, please do. Well, it features Homer voice Dan Castellaneta. I guess all the people from The Simpsons were Tracy Ullman actors. That's why they got the job. But yeah. Well, the, how, how did Tracy not end up with a voice in The Simpsons? She really yeah. got screwed in that. Man. That is odd, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Has she, she must have guessed it in The Simpsons. Um, she must have done. She must have. I can't think. I can't picture a character that she did. But yeah. If it. Yeah, if it's your show that launched the show that made multiple people billionaires. <laughs> yeah, right. God. Um, let, do, you, do you want to do a little... We've done a fair amount of marine stories, but there is a glow-in-the-dark shark story that Justin Broad sent in. I like that. Thank you, Justin. Uh, glow-in-the-dark sharks found off the coast of New Zealand. Oh, by the way, before you do that... Um... This might or might not be a story by the time this airs. We put this out next week, but my phone was beeping earlier. Sorry for not silencing it because I have a friend in Hawaii who other friends were just texting on a group chat to watch out for a tsunami coming because there was just half an hour ago an 8.1 earthquake off the coast of New Zealand. Oh, shit. Yeah. So maybe it's nothing by the time this airs. But if if it is a thing, it'll be weird that we didn't talk about it maybe if we're talking about New Zealand. But uh, I can post here. I'll put one of the stories. So you can see what the latest on it is. 8.0 is huge. But that's in the ocean. So right. it might res- it's, it, you know, it's probably going to depend on what the tide is doing by the time it hits. And where it's angled and where the, you know, which direction the shock waves are and so on. And right. The type of uh, but yeah, earthquake. People, so if you're listening to this and have a time machine, people near the coast of from the Bay of Islands to Wargane, from Matata to Talaga Bay... And Great Barrier Island must move immediately to nearest high ground. You heard it here last. Yeah. Yeah. You will have already moved by now. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Anyway, but, sorry. But yeah, they will. The, these sharks would have experienced it before any humans, I would have thought. These right. three deep water shark species living off New Zealand that glow in the dark collected from the Chatham Rise, an area of ocean floor to the east of New Zealand in January of last year. One of them, the kite fin shark, is now the largest known luminous vertebrate and can reach up to 180 centimetres. That's uh, just shy of six feet. Bioluminescence was also confirmed in the black belly lantern shark and the southern lantern shark. The three species were also known to, known to bi marine biologists, but this is the first time the phenomenon of bioluminescence, which is organisms emitting light, has been identified in them. Hang on, so they've, they've called them lantern sharks before <laughs> they know that they emit light. <laughs> that's remarkable. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a weird kind of nominative determinism where we've called it a lantern <laughs> shark years ago. No idea why. No idea. We just called it a lantern shark. Maybe and then we a, discovered it's a lantern. <laughs> maybe it's a whole placebo thing on behalf of the sharks. Like you just tell yeah. them enough times that they glow and eventually it just happens. <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Um, so many many marine animals, as well as some insects like fireflies, produce their own light, but it's the first time it's been found in larger sharks. The researchers suggest the sharks' glowing underbellies may help them hide from predators or other threats beneath them. Why would it help them hide? No. It's, it's achieved through... Thousands of photophores, which are light-producing cells, located within the shark's skin. They study species that inhabit a space called the mesophilagic zone, also called the twilight zone, which ranges from 200 to 1,000 meters depth, which is the maximum depth reached by sunlight. And the species in question face an environment with no place to hide, hence the need for counter-illumination as a form of camouflage. Hmm... That's odd. I, I still don't, I don't quite understand I don't how counter-illumination is camouflage. No. <laughs> I guess... Because these are all pretty deep water things, are they? Um, yeah, you'd have thought... Hence the if, lack if, of light. So if almost no light is down there, you'd have thought that, that any light would make you stand out. Yeah. But may, maybe they, they shine and all the fish underneath them think, oh, I've got a bit too near the surface. I can see some sunlight and they scarper. Well, that might actually be it. Yeah, if you were underneath a fish and looking up, you can see some light coming down. Their shadow would look more stark than if they somehow matched that amount of light, you know. Okay, yeah, hang on. It is pretty much that. So um, I guess it, it's similar to the way that at some points uh, in the early to mid 20th century, I think it was in, during the Second World War, they worked out that it was better to actually paint the underside of planes white or, or light colors. Yeah. Previously, they, th they thought dark colors would help them camouflage in the sky, but actually they stand out as black silhouettes. And if they paint them light, they are more likely to be camouflaged. Well, similarly, if they're in this, this zone, this um, mid-water zone where there is a sort of twilight amount of light, if they are fully dark, then they look like these dark shadows moving. But if they have a certain amount of counter-illumination that also scatters in the water... They they blend more naturally into the slight amount of glow from uh, prey looking from below, and that also explains why it's their belly that has this bioluminescence yeah. rather than any other part of them. Oh right, right. So it's animals that are looking up at them from below. So yeah, there's there's a Wikipedia article about counterillumination right here that I will also put in the show notes. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. You're a surfer, Andy. Yeah, maybe I was, put some I, put some lights on the bottom of your surfboard to avoid the whole looking like a seal seal issue. 
Well, like we talked about this back when it happened in May, but I, I drove all the way out from the desert just to get in the water and surf when that red tide was happening. That's and that right. Crazy bioluminescence. But as I was doing that and paddling around and like a fireworks show is happening around me, which also triggered other fish nearby saw the blue light that I caused by paddling. And then suddenly there'd be just lightning bolts through the water as fish swim everywhere and then cause more light. I was like, oh, this would be just like a, a dinnertime sign for anything that would want to eat <laughs> me or something my size. Like, it, it, very dumb in retrospect, but like, I'm glad I did it. It was once in a lifetime kind of thing. Yeah, you look like a diner, basically. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, but I mean, the most bizarre, yeah, worth it. But, and then I also opened my eyes underwater and then my eyes hurt for a while afterwards and I realized, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that while they, there was this, you know, sort of toxic microorganism that was taking over the water and making it light up. But it looked cool to open your eyes underwater and wave your hands around in front of them too. So I stand by that. I mean, that is pretty cool. But yeah. while we were also talking about seismic stuff, there was one other story. I think we're, we're almost, we're running up to the end of the show, but listener Christopher Cooper sent in this story that uh, Oregon's Mount Hood has some seismic activity underneath that may, mm. maybe not show indicate that it's going to erupt. But you're Ooh. a former Oregon resident, Andy. Yeah, I mean, we're really living in the shadow of, if that thing goes, that's uh, some real Dante's Peak kind of shit, yeah. But it's it says, it do, the US Geological Survey reporting that it doesn't mean that it's about to erupt, but okay. they had the, a, a swarm of earthquakes lasting for about 45 minutes beneath, from about three to four miles beneath the summit of the volcano, measuring up to 1.3 on the Richter scale. Dozens of... Other quakes were too small to locate. They were all too small to be felt at the surface. And But it does say in the U.S. Geological Survey says, although not a common occurrence, short-lived swarms have occurred near the summit in the past, including in 2013, 2014, and 2016. But another swarm of more than 100 occurred south of Mount Hood's summit on January 17th of this year, raising concerns about the volcano status. They had a maximum magnitude of 2.7 and were centered around three miles down. Geologists say mm. it's considered an uptick in activity, but it's still part of Mount Hood's background seismicity and doesn't mean that an eruption is imminent. Such storms are also found occasionally at Casca other Cascade Mountain peaks, including Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, and Lassen Peak in California. The likely cause is not magma, but the movement of pressurized, superheated water along pre-existing faults, according to the USGS. Okay, if you say so. I mean, Fair enough. yeah. My big takeaway from there is that the collective noun for an earthquake is a swarm. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. didn't know it was a swarm of earthquakes. That makes them sound even more terrifying. It a does. swarm implies some kind of like collective uh, conscious or uh, consciousness or like yeah, like you sort together. of disturb yeah. an earthquake nest. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and just stop poking the earthquake. Stop poking that fault line <laughs> with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> Yeah, and Mount, Mount St. Helens started slowly erupting again in the last 20 years because I know they, they closed it. I, I hiked it in like 2003, and then the next year it was closed as the cinder cone that's regrowing the middle started to smoke and build up again. So, yeah, this stuff is not um, – <laughs> you never know. Yeah, uh, Mount Etna has been going recently, hasn't it? It's sort of, oh, yeah. I know we're in a different continent or whatever, but this – I don't like hearing that all the earth, all the volcanoes are – swarming no yeah yeah my net erupted seven times in the last two weeks damn no, that's and that's yeah. that's like with actual visible lava and stuff yeah 
I don't know if I talked about this already on the podcast, Matt, but TJ Chambers and I restarted our, our movie, our twin movie podcast, Twinsies, and we decided to go with one of the one of the big ones, which is Dante's Peak and Volcano. You've done it. It's yes. been on the list for a while. <laughs> you haven't done Armageddon and Deep Impact yet, right? We've got to save that for if this, if we do start doing this more regularly, that has to be some cap on the end of the entire project or a live performance. It has to be something. We have to get <laughs> Ben Affleck for that or so, something like that. Yeah, that, that Wait, is, is he the... even is he is he in that? Am I thinking of is Ben Affleck in Armageddon? Uh, I don't think so. He doesn't have a love affair with Liv Tyler in that. Am I thinking of I Pearl don't, Harbor? I don't, I don't know. know. I haven't seen it for a very long time. Yeah. No, he is in it. He is in it. My apologies. Okay. Good. Good. Yes, he um, is. But yeah, Dante's speaking volcano, both pretty bad, but surprisingly huge. Like those are both hundred million dollar movies that came out the same year, have pretty big stars. Uh, volcano, the n- notable one because it, it uh, takes place in Los Angeles and doesn't have a volcano. <laughs> I mean, it has lava, <laughs> but it, in the sense of what, when you draw a volcano, it doesn't have one of those in the movie. <laughs> like in the final scene, like a 50 foot tall one has started to form around the La Brea tar pits, but the rest of it is just like lava flowing down Fairfax. It's, it's just like the Californian sketch from SNL, but with lava. <laughs> I have really, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever actually seen either film. Dante's Peak isn't bad. It's a little like Twister in terms of like, um, it's a little less campy than Twister, but like they, you, you could tell they, they tried to get some like real seismologists involved or volcanologists and, and it's a little bit smarter and more fun. And Volcano is just this weird LA. It, it makes no sense because for one thing that the, the like slowly, now you've made it angry. Right. But they, like, they, no one just leaves town, which is what you would do if lava started to flow in the streets <laughs> of Los Angeles. They just try to like put out those little T-bar concrete barriers and, and hold it back as if that's exciting. <laughs> it's really dumb. Just have like a traffic cop there just trying to wave it around. And it's the heyday, it's the heyday of Tommy Lee Jones. Like, man, can that guy ever lay a map out on the hood of a car and get people together around? Like that's his entire <laughs> job as an actor. It's just to delegate. That's most of the movie. So I recommend Dante's Peak over Volcano, but also listen to the Twinsies podcast for our take on them. Well, we should, we, we should probably bring this podcast to an end. Uh, we should start to wrap things up. But Dave, uh, where, where can our listeners find everything about you these days? Um, well, I have uh, um, a website, which is my name with a dot .com on the end. Um, and I have a YouTube channel where I've... Uh, like I did, I did a series called Dave Gorman's Modern Life is Goodish, which is effectively 36 one-hour stand-up specials. It, um, it's a, and, it is an immense amount of work that went into that show. Uh, and they are all on YouTube. And I have been getting quite a few messages from people in America who found them because they're on YouTube. So I guess oh, that's, I did not that's know the that. best place to tap into to what I actually do. And then if you're British and you like word games, um, you know, follow me on Twitter and occasionally I'll mention that I've set a crossword. I think we can pl- we can play those online over here too, right? Or yeah, they- you, you can. can. Yeah. Yeah. The Telegraph ones are behind a paywall, but the, oh, the okay. independent you can access. And you can also... There's a there's a YouTube channel where people solve mostly Sudokus but occasionally crosswords called Cracking the Cryptic, and they've done at least have they done three of your puzzles now? They've done they've done four of mine. Um, they they very rarely do crosswords these days, but I'm, so I'm kind of lucky to have have been done four times by them. Um, but I guess that's a 
the thing I like most about it, because they, these guys, their channel's called Cracking the Cryptic, and they've they've become huge as a channel, get millions of, of views for basically a man doing a Sudoku. <laughs> and there, there was one that went viral a while back because it's a Sudoku that started with almost no numbers in it and just a few yeah. extra rules, and he's getting yeah. very giddy as it starts to fall into place. Yeah, and and it is. It's weirdly compelling. I I do. I I was very cynical about it, and then I watched one. I went, I get it. I get it. I can see why this is working for people. Um, but they started off as a crossword channel. They get so many hits on the Sudoku videos that they're basically that now. And because it's Sudoku, they're getting they get millions of their hits are from the states and from all over the world, from Japan and whatever. Uh, and then every now and then they'll do a crossword, and. When it's one of my crosswords, I've watched it to see what they made of it. It's, you know, having talked about having a no feedback loop of response, it's, it's really fun to watch someone do the crossword you set. So I've, oh, I've watched sure. those. And the comments underneath it, because the guy's explaining his thought process as he goes. But this is what I mean about it being like a cultural thing. If you didn't grow up with these crosswords, it's really hard to understand. And the comments underneath them are all American Sudoku fans going, what is this? Yeah. This makes no sense. Just and how is really he getting the answers out of this? It's apoplectic about it, yeah. It, it, I, I've, I've had a look at some of the comments. That most of them are more confusion and just bewilderment than actual anger. It's just like, well, yeah. how, how has he... It's just like watching two people speak a language if you've never encountered another language before. <laughs> just like, how right. is... He's speaking gibberish, but he's somehow understanding it. How is it... Or like if you've never seen anyone do sign language or something, and just like how is he? How are they actually talking? Yeah, just waving their hands, and they just understand each other somehow. (laughs) But I imagine it's a good way. If I want to learn the the sort of rhythm of it, I should watch one of these videos first, maybe, and then I could maybe get into actually solving them. I I actually think, um, and I've got to know these guys a little bit, and I hope they wouldn't be offended with it. I think they can be so good at what they're doing that it's Uh. intimidating to a new solver. Um, like they're, not my, trying to my, hold your, they're not trying to hold your hand through it. They're just trying to no, solve just, it as quickly as they can. No, they're just solving it at, at their right. pace, and, and, and they're explaining the thought process as they go. So as an example, my wife, my wife has no truck with cryptic crosswords whatsoever. It's not her thing in the slightest. Um, but she tries, as a loving wife, to understand what it is I'm doing, but she's not interested. It's not her game. And I was watching one of those videos um, at the kitchen table on my laptop recently. And one of the clues was for the word dark. And the clue was um, unlit, deserted animal sanctuary. And the guy on the video says, ah, oh, yes, 26 across, I can do this one. Uh, unlit, deserted animal sanctuary. Well, what's the oldest animal sanctuary? We all know it's in the Bible. That's ark, of course. And D, surprisingly, is a legitimate abbreviation for the word deserted. Deserted, animal sanctuary, dark. (laughs) And my wife was walking through the kitchen at the time. She wasn't sort of listening to it. She was doing something else, and she overheard that. And she went, oh, for God's sake! This is why I can't do these things! When he said, what's the oldest animal sanctuary? We've all heard of it. I thought it was Battersea Bloody Dog's Home. (laughs) And she... Completely, like it was just infuriating to yeah. her. Data scene. And when, yeah, and when I try and explain to people how you do them, part of what I'd be saying is like you don't need to know all that. Actually, 
you can guess from reading the clue that the definition might be dark, might be unlit, the first word of the clue. Because it's very unlikely to be, it's a four-letter word, it's very unlikely to mean animal sanctuary or deserted animal sanctuary. So it's probably going to mean unlit. And at some point, you're going to have D blank R blank. And you can guess at unlit. And maybe when you've guessed that dark is a synonym for unlit, you might be going, oh, arc. Yeah, okay, yeah. And, and you can sort of work it out backwards. But watching those guys solve it really fast <laughs> makes you feel like you have to pick the lock. And actually, sometimes you can just kick the door in and you arrive right, in the right. same place, you know. So I think they can be off-putting in a weird way. That, that's it's actually a- one of the rules that we, when we were talking about it at the beginning of the show, we should point out that the um, the definition part of the cryptic crossword clue is always at the beginning or the end of it. It's never in the middle. So it always starts with the definition and then has the wordplay, or it starts with yeah. the wordplay and ends with the definition. Yeah, and... and- and there's no obvious sign of where the join between those two things is. You have to work that out. But it's always there. Um, the, I would say if you wanted to get started, and I, you've mentioned this before, but there is, there's a blog there's, um, called 15 Squared where yeah. a bunch of crossword enthusiasts, essentially, they, they blog most of the, crypt, the cryptic crosswords. They're, there's a different one for the Times, but they... Um, they just they, write they do down... the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Independent, and um, at, at fifteensquared.com. And they will they will give you the solutions, which you could also find from just you know f- from the next day's paper, or even I think the web interface just tells you if you hit solve. Yeah, you but can um, yeah. but it it tells you it passes all of the clues. It tells you how they're broken down and how and explains the makeup. So I I would sort of if you wanted to learn how to do them, I would do that. I would sort of have have a crossword and have this blog open and sort of jump between the two and try to work out the syntax that way and the, the sort of rules and and also start it also tells you in the introduction normally to each of the posts whether they consider it to be an easy or difficult puzzle that day oh. yeah and it generally but not always like with the new york times it generally gets harder throughout the week a monday puzzle is normally easier than a friday puzzle yeah, if I was a beginner, I would know, uh, absolutely avoid trying to solve Friday's Guardian, but Monday's Guardian will have two crosswords for you that are really good beginner crosswords. I've got my afternoon plan now. Excellent. I've got to solve one of these by the end of the day. <laughs> Happy. Is that possible? It's probably not possible. We'll see. Well, the, your, the most recent one you did was, I think, one of your easiest ones. You, yeah. I think you purposely pitched um, a gentler puzzle in the last one you did in The Independent? Is it's, it the last um, one or has there been another one since? No, no, it, it, it was the most recent and it was, but it was actually the fourth one I wrote, but the 15th one they published. So it's because occasionally a clue will have some topicality to it. There've been reasons why it doesn't just go in the order in which I've written them. Um, so he was going back to very early on in my setting when he put that one forward. And, and I, I sort of think maybe other setters are really carefully calibrating their puzzles. I think it's an editor's job to decide which day of the week he thinks something is for. That makes and sense. He wanted to put it on a, a Monday. That's cool. That means it's one of the easier ones. It's not for me to judge, really. You know, I sort of let. So I, I've appeared on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and they vary in difficulty. But I, I figure that's for him to sort out. Right. Um. Is that is that one of the ones that the YouTube channel also solved? I can't. Uh, they 
Uh, yes, I think they did do that one. Uh, oh, no, no, they didn't. They um, they solved the one before that, which was quite tricky. Um, and then the day that was published, I did this Zoom event where people who wanted to learn how to do cryptics could sort of join me on a Zoom, and I went through my own crossword. And one of them joined me on it because I thought it would be kind of nice to have an expert. I'm, I'm not a great solver. I'm a decent setter. I'm not a great solver. And I wanted his insight as well. So the two of us sort of went through the crossword privately on a Zoom rather than on YouTube or anything. And then the next day he solved a, a Tuesday puzzle from The Independent because we, we kind of encouraged everyone on that Zoom to have a go at that puzzle as well when it was out the next day. So they kind of collaborated with me on that, but they didn't actually do the last crossword, I don't think. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you can find you will always tweet out, and when you've got a crossword in the in the papers, presumably. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very aware this is a very niche interest. <laughs> it is. So uh, I think you, if you, you want to know what I'm about, the YouTube comedy. channel is actually better for for knowing what I do in my real life, <laughs> and my real job. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're Which interested these, in a uh... weird side hustle, that's where it is. But if you yeah, if you would rather check out Dave's. Also very intricate and <laughs> cleverly put together, but substantially more accessible long-form stand-up shows, then, yeah, look, find those in all the usual places. Uh, I will link to at least one episode of One Life is Goodish. I think, just because it was a personal favourite of mine, the one that was breaking down queuing. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's nice. Um, it, it was a weird thing. They let, I'm not going to spoil the show in case anyone does follow a link and... and go to it but we we were analyzing queuing and how human beings queue in the show and i i love the fact that the channel let me do this it's sort of we were on the channel for five years and they got braver and and more trusting as the relationship grew and i just don't think there are many tv shows that would allow you this opportunity when we filmed them we always we always taped two shows in a night so the same audience would be there we'd do a show We'd kick them out for a drink. 20 minutes later, we'd do a second show. Uh, and in the second show, we had secret cameras in the bar that night watching our audience from that night. And during that 20-minute interval between the two recordings, we were getting the video into the dressing room. We were cutting the video and writing <laughs> new material to go with the way our audience had behaved in an actual queue at the actual bar that night. Oh, my Which God. is, like, the idea... When you first mention that to a TV producer, and TV producers are so primed to it's everything no risk we want belt and braces we want to know everything that's going into the show right, right. yeah we I want just, to know the transcript of your stand-up yeah. set before you say it yeah yeah such a joyous thing to be able to make telly in that kind of environment where we're allowed to go can we film the audience and then see what they do and then put three minutes of the show about that as well and they would let us i think that was such a, a rare privilege they, did it pay? Did what you shoot? Did what you shot in the bar pay off? As far as uh, backing up what you what your theories about queuing were, or was it did, it yeah. It or no, it did, yeah. It absolutely did. That's awesome. Um, they also let you get away with some quite elaborate pranks, unlike online pranks, which I think other some other networks might have balked at. Which I won't yeah, spoil for sure for people yeah, who watch yeah. the series, but um, absolutely, there, and there was. We had some quite ballsy lawyers. Um, so there, there was one 
one joke in one episode. It's like a very basic visual joke. And I'd done it live, and I knew it worked, and I just wanted to put it in the show. And it was a visual joke. It was a, a magazine cover uh, from Hello Magazine with a picture of Prince William on the front cover. And he was wearing a, a very basic blue pullover. And, and the, but the wording, the, the text from the magazine cover was perfectly aligned so that all this kind of white subheadline only appeared overlaid on the blue jumper. It didn't sort of cross the lines in any way, shape or form. So you look at it and go, there's a picture of a guy wearing a blue jumper and there's some text on the cover as well. And the, the visual joke was about him, like my dad or someone what, looking at that and going, I'd, love, I'd like a jumper like that. If you get me a present, I'd like one like that. And we had one like that, but it had all the text printed on, <laughs> on the jumper. So, but in order to do that joke, obviously I've got to show the audience the magazine cover. And then we get into this legal thing where the lawyers are going, you can't show that magazine cover, you don't own it, it's their creative oh. thing. Okay. But it, you don't have enough to buy the magazine to see it. You can walk into any newsagent's and see it on a newsstand. That, that's like freely available. Look at it. That's, and also, I understand. I, I completely believe in copyright. I don't want to rip anyone's copyright off. But to me, abusing their copyright would be using that image in the way that they intended that image to use to achieve the effect that they were using it to achieve. It's clearly a joke about how they've used the image. It's a joke about how they've typeset it. It's it's commentary. And the lawyers go, unless you say it's commentary, it's not commentary. Oh, my God. I I don't have to say, oh, and by the way, this is my joke about how the typesetting is. The fact that the audience laughs is your proof that they understand that's what this is. We get into this thing, and eventually we had to write to Hello Magazine for permission, and they wrote back saying, no, you can't do it. Of course. Uh, So then I, so we basically said, we're doing it. We're going to do it. So we did the joke. And then talked about the fact that the lawyers have said I couldn't do it, and this is the reason why. And I'm only allowed to do it if it's commentary, if I'm making a comment about what this magazine cover looks like. So we wrote to Hello, and Hello said, no, you can't use it. So now I'm forced into saying, this is the worst fucking magazine cover I've ever seen in my life. What twat designed this? And now now we're legally allowed to tell the joke. And again, like, what brilliant lawyers who allowed us to do that on, on British TV. Um, so, yeah, we, we... It's this most ridiculous thing. It's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I completely understand the idea of copyright and I don't want to abuse it. But you should be... If, if they've put it out there in the world for free to look at and we're going, doesn't it look silly? But the funniest way of saying that is not to say the words, doesn't it look silly? <laughs> right. This is the joke. Yeah. The joke commenced, joke finished. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. They forced our hand, and funnily enough, after that, we had a lot more yeses when we asked. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, check out all of those. You can find us online, as always, at probablyscience.com, on Twitter, at probablyscience, individually, at Andy T. Wood, at Matt Kirshen. Uh, probablyscience.com is also where we put all of our show notes and our Patreon and PayPal links. Thank you very much, all of the donors and the supporters. And probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you would like us to cover. Uh, Dave, again, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.